So this last week has been insane in the news week. First, Congress held a hearing on aliens where individuals testified under oath that the government has recovered the remains of non-human pilots in unknown aircrafts. Then we have Obama's chef who mysteriously drowned right outside of the Obama residence in Martha's Vineyard. Then, of course, Hunter Biden maybe took a plea, plea deal. Maybe he didn't. Uh, it's still not really clear on that. Trump, of course, has been indicted again for the gazillionth time. Nancy Mace gleefully reminded us that she's a fornicator at a prayer meeting. Mitch uh, McTurtle McConnell malfunctioned on camera for the world to see. Greg Abbott is finally making moves to close the border, or is he? And of course, Bud Light is laying off hundreds of employees in what may be the biggest get woke, go broke story we've ever seen. All this to say, picking the stories for this week was incredibly difficult. So I decided to focus in on a few stories that are pretty important, but flew under the radar because maybe they are less glamorous. So on this episode of Forge and Anvil, we will discuss how parents in Tyler, Texas have organized a grassroots campaign to send explicit library books to city officials in an effort to create awareness of what local children are being exposed to. In addition to this, we will discover uh, how Gabe Wrench won a settlement of $300,000 for being arrested at a maskless psalm sing in 2020. Finally, we'll discuss how the trans manifesto from the Covenant school shooting in Nashville may take up to three years to be released. All this and more, so stick around. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us this evening. Uh, I am joined first and foremost by two first-time guests, the first of which is Sarah Fields. So, Sarah, please tell the audience who you are and what you do. Uh, hi. Yeah. Um, so, I'm a investigative journalist for The Publica. I'm also um, director of advocacy and president for Texas Freedom Coalition, which is an organization in Texas that advocates for the nuclear family and constitutional rights. Um, I'm a Republican state delegate, um, and I'm a mom of three. And um, yeah, we fight. And one of our biggest fights is we fight to protect children. Excellent. Well, welcome on. Glad to have you. And uh, for the first time as well, we have Ron Coleman. So Ron, same question. Well, I'm going to give you a different answer. Uh, I'm uh, a lawyer. I work in New York and New Jersey. My office is located in, in lovely Newark, New Jersey. I do constitutional law, free speech related law, intellectual property. I'm a partner with Harmeet Dillon, who your listeners have probably heard of. I'm very active on Twitter with my handle right there in the name, at Ron Coleman. And uh, I have a podcast of my own little self called Culmination. One word, it's meant as a pun, not as a nation thing. And I'm very pleased to be with you tonight. Excellent. And monitoring your chats on Rumble and back again is my amazing co-host, Michael Aper. Hello, friends. I'm a student of scripture. I want to see the righteousness of God upheld by the people of God. Plain and simple. Welcome back, Michael. Hope you enjoyed your... I wish I would have said that. Amen. I should have said that. <laughs> Welcome in Michaela and Shara on YouTube, as well as Connor1788 on Rumble. We appreciate you guys joining us. Let's go ahead and dive into our first story. Parents sending graphic gender ideology books to Texas officials in child safeguarding effort. So normally, I have the pleasure of reading all of this article out loud to you, but tonight we are actually blessed to have the author of this article 
Sarah on the podcast. So um, Sarah, if you want me to read any part of this article, feel free to let me know. But first and foremost, do you want to kind of just give us a little bit of background on this? Yes, absolutely. Um, so this article uh, was, was written because here in Tyler, Texas, we have been fighting against our public library board for several years now. The parents have arrived there. They have spoken at the school at the, excuse me, the uh, public library board meetings and have brought up concerns over pornographic materials that were found not just within the library, but within the youth section of the library. So this material was available to children. And there were certain books that were found, such as Out of Darkness, um, which is extremely sexually explicit, um, and All Boys Aren't Blue, which is not just sexually explicit, but depicts um, situations of incest and um, uh, pedophilia. And uh, it was it's deeply disturbing. And we have showed up several times and you know spoken uh, regarding our concerns with these books. The problem is that the library board, say for one person who's a very good friend of mine, actually, um, the rest of the library board is very woke, and um, they take their uh, they look at their leadership as the the Marxist ALA uh, because the ALA is currently being led by the, a president who is a Marxist or self-proclaimed Marxist. Um, and that is who they take their marching orders from. And so this has been a fight for several years. And at the last board meeting, um, it, it was incredible. The, the parents showed up in droves. I was there. So many amazing political activists, local political activists showed up at that board meeting and spoke um, about their concerns regarding the books. And the two books, Out of Darkness and um, All Boys Aren't Blue, were brought up, and a vote was going to be held on whether they should be moved from the youth section to the adult section of the library. Um, I uh, spoke, and my very good friend Kristen Bentley spoke, and I'll talk about her in just a few minutes because uh, the Dirty 30 campaign, which is what we, we have started, the idea came from her. Um, but... Uh, I brought up the fact that if they did not listen to us and they did not do as the parents had asked them to do, that we were going to blow this up, that we were going to make this known. We were going to make sure that people outside of that local area knew about what they were doing. And we were going to provide a solution and we were going to go above their heads until they did what we wanted them to do. I told them I had a large platform and I was going to use it because God gave it to me and I'm going to use it for the right thing. Um, they halfway listened to us and they only moved, um, out of darkness and they left all boys aren't blue in the youth section of the library. That was the final vote at the end. Um, and it was very disturbing, um, including the fact that at the very end, you know, all of us are Christians. I'm a Christian. Um, we, you know, as I said, I brought up God and I said, God gave me this ability to, bring attention to this. So I'm going to use it. There was an elderly lady on the board who spoke up after the vote had already been taken. People were upset. The board meeting was just about over. And she spoke up and she said that Christians need, uh, ought to be ashamed of themselves 
for speaking up against these books. Um, it was absolutely, to me, a, a very disgusting display of just absolute hypocritical behavior um, for calling out Christians for wanting pornographic materials removed from children's eyes. Um, and so from there, uh, we decided to go ahead and begin uh, with Joanne Fleming, who's Grassroots of America. Um, she has a very large organization here in East Texas. Um, she, uh, she's an amazing human being. And under her, we have started this campaign called the Dirty 30, which is uh, a campaign where we are going to be sending a dirty book to all of the local officials um, here in Tyler, Texas. So the mayor, the city officials, the, all the officials within commissioner's court. And um, yeah, we're, we're going to be asking for a public hearing and uh, asking for it to be in the evening so that parents can come after they are, you know, finished working and uh, come and speak their piece regarding um, the issue with the local library. So, and so far, the article that I wrote has now reached over 300,000 views. Hmm. It's making headway. Wow. Yeah. And you guys can check that out on thepublica.com. I highly recommend it. It's a great read and um, we may reference some of it here in a moment, but it's really unfortunate that you even have to do this. I mean, it's wild to think that these type of graphic materials are making their way into the hands of small children because officials in charge just don't want to listen to, to the constituents that they serve. And that's really just a shame that, that, uh, the one uh, individual made a point to bring bring your faith into question, or I should say slander your faith by saying uh, we, Christians have no right to, I guess, be vocalizing against these uh, uh, inappropriate, explicit materials falling into the hands of children. So that's absolutely ridiculous. Um, was, it, was, this, was this woman's point of view that it was unchristian of you to take this position, or was her point of view that Christian sensibilities should not play a role in your having a position. Um, she said that we should be ashamed as Christians because our position was discriminatory against the LGBTQ plus community. That's, that's basically uh, what it was because that's what they see it. They see it Obviously as a, a serious theologian. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. My so goodness. That, that's, the moral that's high ground is strong there. Certainly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Ron, tell us more of your initial reaction to this story and just everything that's going on here. Well, nothing really surprises me anymore, though I, I think that the the effort that, that Sarah and her allies are are, are, are undertaking is, is, is a very nice and novel one. I've been very familiar with this issue for a while because um, I mentioned before we were talking that my wife writes for Legal Insurrections. She interviewed Nicole Solis, who everyone knows is a, a very big activist in this area in Rhode Island. And I had actually Nicole on my podcast a couple of times to discuss what's going on uh, in, you know, in, in the case where she was sued by the school district. Uh, and then the school district backed off, but the, the teachers union continued her lawsuit against her. What did she do? She wanted to know what was on the curriculum. And she stood on her rights and she demanded that they tell her what the curriculum was and ultimately they sued her. So um, I've been all too familiar with this. I saw, uh, I'm, I'm 
also again through my wife's work got to know um some other activists and i've seen how they will prevent people from people at these public meetings at these school board meetings or school committee meetings from seeing what's in these books so what sarah is doing by actually making sure that the books really get out there and people have a real understanding of what it is that they're voting for because to some extent it's virtue signaling they're they're not necessarily they think of it as virtue which no no one in this conversation does but they think of themselves as as representing the zenith of tolerance uh and it's important for them to understand what it is that they're tolerating because there is a moral responsibility when you're in charge of children especially not to tolerate everything yeah. Right. And I and I think um, another thing is that I think uh, so we've been fighting this for several years as well. Um, and this method that we are using as far as sending these dirty books to local officials has already worked in the past. Um, and I think that speaks volumes um, since it's already worked with uh, the Texas legislature and getting these books removed from public school libraries, then we take it to a local level since it has worked before. And I think that's part of the problem is that we can work to expose this. Um, I truly believe that's what God has commanded us to do is to expose this as according to Ephesians 5.11 says that we're not to take no part in these evil works, but we're to expose it. But I think that people are also so tired of seeing it and knowing that it's happening and not seeing any answers or being given a solution to the problem. And I think that's what's so unique about what we're doing and about uh, what I wrote about is that it is giving people an ability to take action and do the same thing in their own communities, because this is not something that's difficult. Um, you get a few people together, you figure out these people's emails, you figure out, you know, uh, how you can mail something to them and that's it, you know, and start. And then once you have their attention, which, you know, it, it's pretty easy to grab someone's attention with these books. Um, you begin to say, you begin to ask them, okay, are you listening to us now? Can we now have the floor? Um, and it's worked before. And I truly believe it's going to work again. I think we're on the eighth or the ninth day now. So, and Something else I want to point out, um, and I didn't go into too much detail in it in my article, um, but uh, I sent an email to every single city official here um, locally, and I sent an email to all of the board members of the, the library asking them, not only are you aware of this issue, but can you make comment on it? Because this is very concerning and, you know, everyone is very worried about this. Not a single person responded except for one. Um, and that was my good friend that's on the library board. And she literally told me, she said, you're not going to hear from anybody. She said, no one, she said, I would be very surprised if anybody else responded to your email. Um, so because they did not respond to me, that was very telling uh, that they, they are hoping that if they ignore this, it's going to go away and we're not going to let it go away. Good for you. Michael, Sarah, what's your I have reaction? A, yeah. I have a question for you, Sarah, and that's largely regarding how are these books introduced to the library in the first place? Are these library officials going through a vetting process and introducing them to the shelves or how are they being brought in to begin with? Um, so there are several different ways. Uh, one of the ways um, is that these books are being brought in uh, in bundles 
And so some of these books, such as All Boys Aren't Blue and Gender Queer, um, which is extremely graphic, um, have been given awards. And since they have been given awards, they come in bundles of books that have been given awards. Okay, this is an award-winning bundle right here. So they arrive in a bundle, they purchase, you know, they they get the bundle and they they put it into put it, you know, put it onto the shelves. But another thing is that a lot of these librarians and those who approve these books, they know exactly what they're doing. Um, they know uh, what books that uh, they are some sometimes are requesting and putting into the youth section. Um, there was also an open records request that was written um, asking the library if any of these books had been flagged as you know explicit material in any way. And um, several other things were asked. But one of the one of the big things to note is that some of the publishers of these books actually contacted the the librarian and the board and told them that these books do not belong in the youth section, that they are meant for adults. And those uh, publishers were actually ignored. So they know what they're doing. They know that, they, that these books are being purposely placed on these shelves for children to access. Yeah, good grief. And for those who don't know, for those who are maybe unaware of those titles and maybe have yet to um, you know, read Sarah's article, which I highly recommend doing, um, these books are definitely explicit. I mean, gender queer, it's it's all cartoon artwork, right? But it but it's depicting it, sexual actions. It, exactly. Explicit and behavior. explicitly sexual mm -hmm. actions that I can't even repeat the kind of actions that are being depicted in this book on YouTube for fear of our video being taken down. I mean, so I, I can't even verbally describe it to wow. you what they're showing that these children have access to. So, I mean, it, it's just wild. So, um, I mean, Ron, I, I think I should turn it over to you um, just to ask, like, have you I mean, you work within the law field. Have you seen a lot of uh, different cases surrounding this kind of scenario that's being raised? Is it kind of like a recent thing that's starting to trend? So this is only bubbling its way up into into the administrative first, the administrative process and then into the legal process. In Rhode Island, for example, there was a lawsuit uh, that was filed against, um, against the school board. And as a general rule, some tried to claim that, the, to make the claim that, which I think every, again, everyone here would agree is a reasonable claim, uh, except under US law which is that this is pornographic material. I think mm -hmm. all of us would have no difficulty identifying this as pornographic material, but the only pornographic material that is not constitutionally protected is, is pornographic material that either in, involves non-consensual non -consensual acts uh, or children, or which supposedly has no artistic or literary value whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And there's a great deal of deference that's given uh, to a claim of artistic or, or, or literary value. So it's impossible to stop this from happening for all practical purposes. It's impossible to stop this from happening on a pornography framework. And that's because that's not what the framework was meant to, de to deal with. Uh, 
Hmm. Uh, as much as as all of us would probably like to see pornography defined differently under under the law, I don't think that's ever going to change. I don't I don't think you can break. I don't think you can reel that back in. The astonishing thing is, uh, sorry, Michael, I, I, you're probably going to say something that I think I, I'm going to agree with, but yeah, please continue. But this should not be a matter of of, of whether it can be prosecuted as pornography. It should be a matter of won't adults, including parents of children that were in these schools, won't adults take moral responsibility for what's going on? Because there's because the, the administrators, the librarians, the school boards, and the parents have moral obligations and they have power and discretion. The mere fact that something isn't constitutionally prohibited doesn't mean that it belongs in the library. And right. you know, as you're saying, Sarah, this is a decided choice that's being made. It's not accidental. It's not being made at the margin. It is part of a of a nationwide effort that is being made largely through the American Library Association to to damage the, the psyches and the and the more and the moral framework of, of America's children. Yeah. Michael, I'm sorry. I, 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 That's you, all right. Sarah mentioned earlier that there were some images and, and themes that were incestual in nature or even uh, pedophilic. <clears throat> At what point does that stray into the legality of, of whether these things can be removed? Well, if, if someone is writing about an experience he had and he wants to teach about it, he wants to explore the humanity of it, again, from the pornography point of view, it's essentially impossible to... To, to, to borrow. It's not a matter of what's the subject matter. It's a matter of what's the tone and what's the purpose. Mm. And virtually all pornography is now made in a way so that it prima facie doesn't fall into the pornography bucket. You have to be a really, 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 really depraved person to, and there are people, as we see unfortunately all the time, who are to, to, to run afoul of pornography laws in this country. Hmm. But again, it's, it's, it's entirely a matter of why are school boards doing this? Why are these decisions being made? Why are the publishers who have every interest in the world to promulgate what they publish being ignored? It's something very, very sick and something very, you know, very <laughs> scary. Yes. And, and Ron, are you familiar with uh, Alfred Kinsey and the obscenity exemptions that we have um, in this in this country? Because, yeah, and what you're you're hitting the, the nail on the head. Um, but also it's they look at these books and they determined that they are educational in nature as they are looked at as a whole. And they consider that to be a part of the obscenity exemption, which ultimately started with the Alfred Kinsey era, um, where he tried to prove that all children are born with a sexual nature. And, um, and it's, it's disgusting. He was a pedophile. Yes, um, but that is, where this, that is where a lot of this began. Um, and so now we have states within the country who are trying to you know, repeal the obscenity exemption. Um, and we've we've done so here in a way with the school library boards, but not with the public library boards. And that's that's what I think our next uh, task is is going to be. Um, and one of the things you you know you mentioned was why are they doing this? 
And if I can, if I can give a little bit of, um, in, you know, I, I think we all know a lot of the whys, but if I can also give um, a little bit of insight on that as well, I have a, um, a master degree in psychology and it is absolutely unreal to me how much of the science and the um, psychology of the development of a child's mind is being ignored. I graduated in 2014 and I learned about the development of a child's brain and uh, male and female are significantly different from each other. Males take longer to develop. Um, and we learn about the prefrontal cortex and we learn about um, the fact that the prefrontal cortex is suppressed when a child is sexually traumatized. When a child is introduced to sexual trauma, to sexual images, um, and now it's everywhere. It's on the it's on the TV. It's in these books. It's in school. It's in curriculum. It's everywhere. These children turn. No child seems to be safe um, without their parent right there, uh, able to determine what they should and should not see or read or watch. Um, and it's very sad. But the ultimate goal, um, I believe, is to traumatize these children because without the prefrontal cortex, which regulates behavior and um, uh, allows for logical thinking, uh, which is, you know, if you really think about that, look at the liberal teenagers of today who are mm -hmm. here with all the piercings and the crazy colored hair and they're screaming and they don't have logical thought and they're not able to piece together an argument. They, I truly believe, don't have the ability to logically put thought together because they have been their, their prefrontal cortex has been oppressed in a way. And then they have their limbic system, which is the survival part of their brain, which is, you know, triggers the fight or flight and a child will forever see the entire world is dangerous. Mm. And that's how a lot of these children are looking at the world. Everything is dangerous. Everything is scary. You're out to get me. Everyone is out to get me. Um, I am me. I'm my own self. And if you're attacking me in any way, then you're a bad person. And that's how mm. all these teenagers are now thinking. Interesting. Uh, we did have a chat that actually asked, what does the prefrontal cortex do? So if you can maybe give a little insight on that. Right. So as I said, the prefrontal cortex is uh, in charge of your logical thought. It is. It is. It regulates your behavior. Um, it's. It regulates your critical thinking skills. Your ability to look into the future. Your ability. Your ability to see a situation and piece together. Okay. In this case, what is going to happen if this happens or if there's this scenario? You know. It. That's essentially what it is. Um, and if you don't have the ability to. Uh, to access that, then, I mean, as I said, there are a lot of examples, as you can see, you know, people out on the streets asking people questions and um, they have nothing, they have no argument. All they can do is uh, personally attack you and call you nasty names like transphobe and bigot and whatnot, which I get called every single day. Well, let's take this to the next step, Sarah. What is the, how, how do the people who are pushing this benefit from producing a generation of people who are unable to think critically. Because anyone who is una unable to think critically can be controlled. And they, mm -hmm. and, and they think emotionally, they act emotionally. There you go. Mm -hmm. and, there you go. Yes. and look at the left's arguments. The left's arguments are primarily emotional. So you see these emotional arguments being 
focused in on uh, young voters too. They're constantly trying to to lower that voting age on the left, and so you see young voters being targeted, who are emotionally driven, and they are being given emotional arguments. Therefore, they are becoming a very controlled and reliable voter base. Right. Yeah. And um, if they can be controlled, then yes, they can be persuaded. And uh, as I said, um, it, it's it's crazy to me how much I learned in school about the development and how much of that is being buried. That so much truth, so much education that I have is not even being paid attention to, which is why, honestly, at this point, I don't think I could even work in the psychology world, because if I did, I would be going off of what I've actually learned. And now we are living in a world that is completely, as you said, driven by emotion and not the science and not the facts. Yeah, I agree. Well, Ron, so if if some of these states were to go about changing some laws that would maybe... Um, create some tighter regulation around what we define as pornography. How successful do you think that would be realistically? Again, it can't be on the pornography axis because that ultimately is United is, is a first amendment issue. Hmm. So states have nothing to say about it. The only thing they can and probably should do is, and I think this is the sort of thing that I think to some extent Ron DeSantis has done in Florida is tighten up, centralized supervision of local school boards ability to control these things and of course that's not going to be very helpful in your really blue states where the centralized legislatures if anything are are worse right or no better than you know in new york for example and in new jersey where i live the northern and southern parts of the state are like two different cultures. Um, in, in New York, it's the upstate is much more conservative, much more, much more red. At least in those areas, people, people want to retain the sort of control that they have over their school boards. On the other hand, the New York legislature is now so overwhelmingly weighted towards the more heavily populated urban areas, especially around New York City, in and around New York City, that the legislature there is, you know, it, it, it's like the California legislature. I mean, you know, they're just, they're, they're, so centralized control can be just as bad. So there, you know, it, what really has to happen, and I think that there's a very strong um, consensus among political activists, and Sarah, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think what your work demonstrates this, is that it has to happen at the grassroots level. It has to happen at the school board level. Matt Walsh demonstrated this during the code when he attended that school board meeting in Virginia, where they were talking about um, COVID policy. These people are on these school boards who are taking these sorts of positions are not people of principle, they're not strong. They are not equipped to fight back, and they are not constitutionally small c um, able to fight back. They're, what they get from this is, you know, is a little bit less obvious to me. But pushback tends to really be effective. Sarah, I was wondering, 
you know, in Tyler, which is interesting, Tyler is where I took my first deposition <laughs> as oh. a lawyer um, many, many, many years ago. Uh, it, in Tyler, is there, we're, we're, are the parents generally supportive of what you're trying to do? Yes, uh, they are. Um, and I mean, I mean, and you could see it in that room at the and last. I would think that. Yeah, we. I mean, we were definitely the majority, um, and that's that's what's that's what's crazy about this is there. I mean, and and the more we expose it, the more parents we have who are just absolutely disgusted with what is going on. They just need the tools in their hands to know what to do. Um, and if I may, um, and you you can you know you're a lawyer, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But one of the things that was brought up in this last uh, legislative session is that um, a lot of uh, Democrats actually made the argument for HB 900, which was the a bill that went after the vendors, not necessarily the school the school libraries, but this is a bill that went after the vendors that told vendors that they were not allowed to sell these books to uh, the school libraries anymore and that any books that were explicit had to be had to have a, um, a warning label placed on the on the on the cover. Um, but one of the biggest arguments that we heard from especially from the Democrat side was that this was protected uh, under the First Amendment. Um, and the argument was also made um, in opposition to that, that actually uh, sexually explicit materials that are being given to children is not protected, uh, is not considered free speech. It's not considered protected by the First Amendment um, because we even have regulations already in place by the FCC that does not allow sexually explicit images or language to be spoken at certain times of the day. Um, and the entire intention of that is to protect children because it is not considered uh, protect uh, sexually indoctrinating children or presenting it before a child is not considered uh, protection under the First Amendment. So we were, we were able to shoot that that down several times. Um, and like I said, th this campaign that we're using now locally, we used um, on the state level and we sent a lot of these books uh, to the, the legislature, to the Republicans and the Democrat side. But it's it's crazy because the exposure of this campaign um, was pretty amazing because we even had Democrats um, who, once they saw the books, were absolutely disgusted by what they saw, um, including Representative Theory, um, who is a, a state representative here in Texas, who is a Democrat, and she strongly supported HB 900 and um, the ban on pediatric gender modification, which was incredible. She gave an incredible speech on the House floor. And uh, all the, the rest of the very liberal Democrats tried to cancel her, tried to censure her, tried to remove her from her position simply because she took our side on this matter. So mm. it's a shame. It really goes to show, though, at the end of the day that, you know, in order to the quickest route to the grassroots is really affecting culture, you know, and that's why ideas can have some impact, um, you know. Walsh, um, you mentioned him earlier, Ron, and Matt Walsh's movie, What is a Woman? I mean, that was probably, a, in my opinion, that was like one of the biggest game changers over the last couple of years that's really shifted the narrative on um, transgenderism and just the sexuality 
uh, movement as a whole. And um, just goes to show that you can never uh, go wrong with trying to positively impact the culture, even if it's just one person at a time. And that will trickle on and, you know, maybe radicalize someone and you'll get another uh, another Sarah out there doing activism. So you know, Sarah also said something and you talk about culture in general, you know, about how even exposure to sexual images and to some extent concepts, depending on the age, is traumatic to a young child. And I remember speaking recently uh, about how our culture is so utterly saturated with, with sexual obsession. And we, you know, this goes back to something that what I maybe thought Michael was going to say a little while ago. And I said, I don't think you can reel back in the, lo the laws about pornography in this country. Uh, and I don't think you, you can, because I, I do think to a large extent, you sort of have these infrastructure issues and we're not, we're simply not prepared to bust people's doors down. There isn't support for that. But this idea that we have to abandon the culture to what comes out of Hollywood, what's available on the internet, um, and, you know, to some extent, it's a blessing in disguise that we see this happening in the schools because it prevents us from kidding ourselves about the, the degree of vigilance that we have to have and the choices that we have to make in raising our children. My children all attended religious school uh, and all my grandchildren are attending religious school. None of this stuff is stuff that we have to worry about. But I am, you know, very glad that I have the, you know, that we've made these choices. If, if my kids were growing up in this time and we were in public school and we knew this kind of thing was happening, it's hard for me to imagine that, that parents are, are letting this happen. But then on the other hand, it's hard for me to imagine that parents would let their kids watch the things they watch on TV yeah. and that they're letting their kids use the kind of language that, that kids use these days. So, yeah. you know, I, you can do as much fire and brimstone as you want every society declines but you can you can make choices with your own family about where you're going to live and what you're going to expose them to and these are going these choices are going to be, to require hard decisions and, and as a culture we have trouble making hard decisions we have hard trouble saying no to ourselves but it's it's the fundamental responsibility of a parent to say no you can't eat that no, you can't put your finger in, 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 in an electric socket. And no, you can't have a smartphone. That's you, you know, you can't have a smartphone. Maybe when you were 18 and you're on your own. But my kids did not. None of my kids grew up with cell phones. Um, now, it's true my youngest, our, my youngest sons are 24. They're twins. They don't have smartphones now by choice. They're yeshiva students. Um, and they're yeshiva. It's not permissible to have a smartphone. In fact, they have phones that are the sort of a regulation, a standard of dumbness that so that they can basically text and not much else. Um, they're, they're missing out. What are they missing out on? Things that we 
people my age all grew up all grew up entirely without and managed somehow to flourish. Right. These are the harder decisions. You know, yes, we need to go into the school boards, you know, and we need to fight these fights in the grassroots, but we also have to, you know, ask, we have to make choices about what's happening in our homes. Yeah. For the Ultimately, the, the micro, micro is much more important than the macro. Go ahead, Michael. Mm-hmm. To that point, the, the parents that are listening, I can imagine the, uh, the pushback to that argument is that oftentimes children that are in public school systems, myself included, I was raised up in a public school system because my parents were unable to either afford for me to go into a private institution or otherwise teach me at home. And that's usually where this conversation goes is that our solution, the the grassroots solution for our own children is to say, I will provide them with an alternative, but many low income families do not see that alternative. And I want to know, Ron, what would be your response to that sort of pushback? I have a tweet that's actually my twin peak, my my twin peak, my pinned tweet right now, which I from time to time dig up again. And it wasn't because I knew that we would necessarily be discussing this today, but but I discussed this very issue and I say, disconnect your family from the public schools or nothing else you do to conserve your creator culture will matter. It's hard, mm-hmm. it's expensive, but if you're really a conservative, it's everything. And that's from November of 2019. And there's been a lot of very interesting discussion that has come in response to that tweet. And sometimes people say, well, you know, Ron, you're a lawyer, you could afford it. We gave up a lot, a lot of disposable income. I mean, it's true. If someone's making millions of dollars a year, it's not a sacrifice. I'm not one of those lawyers. <laughs> um, we also gave up a lot so that my wife would mostly be home. My wife was a degree from Stanford Law School, nonetheless spent most of the time when our children were young raising her children. Those are decisions that we made. Um, but what other people have said is, is that, first of all, there, there, there are extraordinary resources available for homeschooling now, which is asking a lot. I recognize that. I wouldn't be up to it, frankly. But people have said, here's what we gave up in order to send our kids to religious school. Here's what we sacrificed. In other words, it's not only an option to for available for people who are upper middle class or, or well off. Uh, but it's it's a very, very hard choice. And the problem is you could make, you know, even five years ago, you could say, listen, in the right school district, you can get these really quality educations. And we're not, you're not giving up your child to Malach. You know, bring, have a good home, teach them good values, and they'll learn reading, writing, and arithmetic in school. And what's wrong with that? You're paying the taxes for it anyway. And what we see now is, the people that we have been trusting with the responsibility for our children, if they're even learning reading and writing, writing, writing and, and arithmetic, they're also, I mean, some of this stuff is coming from the librarians, mm-hmm. which are people that parents never interact with. They're accountable yep. to just the principal. Parents don't know what the library librarian is doing and what books are being put in the library. What, why should you even be having these conversations 
And going back to you know what, what I was saying a second ago, children are not comfortable. You know, you ever when you were a kid, you're watching a movie with the family at home, watching something on TV, and all of a sudden there's a mushy part, okay? And the kids start squirming and they're uncomfortable. That's normal. That's normal. And and you know, there are certain adults who think, oh no, they need they need to see this. No, they don't need to see this. The time. Believe me, when they're adults, they will absolutely figure it out. I'm not talking about to regard sexuality as a sin or something to be ashamed of. But in our tradition, in the Jewish tradition, we have this concept of there is a place for a place for, for things that are special and intimate and personal. And that place is not public and that place is not is not something to be you know to be shared it's a, these are very private matters and and they're adult matters and I'm, and I'm sure that all of you see see it the same way it's you know michael people have to these people who are saying this we can't afford it you've got to ask yourself what can you afford to prevent your children from turning into these freaks these or even being exposed to these freaks who you see on tiktok um, yeah uh can i also just I'm going to throw this out here real, real quick. Um, I've, I've been homeschooling my children for years. Um, and it, it was really hard at, at, you know, as a single mom who was going to school, uh, getting my degree and working full time and homeschooling my children. And they were young children at the time. They're older now, but they were younger. I, I was struggling. Um, but someone told me something um, that made a lot of sense. And it, it's, it's so true now, even that if you sit down with your child, even for just 30 minutes and you read them something out of a good history book and go over some math problems and have them do a small writing assignment, even if it's just for 30 minutes to an hour, they're going to learn more, more than likely in that time then they will learn for the entire week that they would attend a public school. And it's so true right now um, because we have children who are graduating, who don't know how to read. They don't know how to write. They've been fully indoc indoctrinated by uh, left-wing agendas. And, you know, now they don't have the capability to even uh, put together th a thought process in order to even write uh, an article or uh, an essay you know, and, and then they're struggling in college. And so, um, that, that really, that meant, that meant a lot to me. And that really was impactful on me because, you know, I, I was very hard on myself and now my middle child who's 13 just got into a very, very good Christian preparatory school here locally. And they told me they, they, they were like, Oh my gosh, he, he tested very high. He did really well. And that made me feel amazing because I was like, okay, it, it, I wasn't doing as badly as I thought I was, but it honestly, it wasn't even that difficult. People think that it's so hard, but honestly, it's just, it's basic uh, education. You know, it's sitting down and reading them from an actual reading to them from an actual history book, you know, and not pushing ideas or anything, allowing them to listen to actual truth and um, come to conclusions on their own. Um, and they don't have that in the public schools anymore. So that, that statement uh, 
to any any parents who are listening, I promise you, sit down with your child for 30 minutes. They're going to learn more than they do a, a, for a, that they would in a for a week in a public school. So yeah, thank you so Amen much for saying that, sir. And that was the heart of what I was getting at with you, Ron, as well, is that you were discussing the difficult decisions that need to be made, and in those difficult decisions come sacrifices in order to preserve the intellectual integrity of our children. Yeah. Speaking of difficult decisions, I want to transition us because we got another great story to cover here. And this is uh, this is another story that is kind of uh, focused in on the, the the micro, but definitely affects the macro as well. So massless churchgoer settles lawsuit over 2020 arrests calls liberal liberalism a modern day cult. Idaho resident Gabriel Wrench was awarded a hefty settlement for his 2020 arrest during the height of COVID-19 pandemic. Wrench spoke out about his case Monday and argued his arrest was the result of liberalism and cancel culture. Wrench was arrested in September 2020 along with two other churchgoers for not wearing masks to an outdoor worship service. The three brought the lawsuit forward the following year, alleging their First and Fourth Amendment rights were violated. The city of Moscow ultimately agreed to settle $300,000. I'm very grateful that I got a victory. How many people nationwide didn't get a victory, Wrench asked Monday on Fox & Friends. He explained to host Pete Hegseth that he believes the settlement is the city's attempt to pay off a massive PR problem. Wrench was arrested in the middle of a worship service. In a video of the incident, officers are seen taking a hymn book out of Wrench's hand before leading him away in handcuffs. And you can see him there on the screen. The three were then detained for several hours. They violated my First Amendment rights in a small town, he said. And I think really what you're seeing in the city of Moscow is a microcosm of what's going on nationwide. The city of Moscow is known as a liberal college town, home of the University of Idaho, and an overall red state. Liberalism is really turning into a kind of modern day cult. They use coercion. They want power and they have no real moral standard that is kind of fixed for them. He said wrench then called out the city mayors for violating his own pandemic era mandates. Our mayor was breaking social distancing and masking rules. He went and played golf and drank beer with his buddies. The day he shut down our town in March, 2020 wrench claimed. He was officiating open door, excuse me, outside weddings a month before he had me arrested. And there we have it. And that's basically the the super short uh, summary of of Gabe Wrench's story. Now, Gabe Wrench, he's been doing a lot of great things up in Moscow, uh, along with all those uh, Moscow guys. They've been really uh, making some some waves in the culture there in Idaho, but they are in a very blue college town. And so it was kind of crazy. The, the initial video that uh, of Gabe's arrest went viral. I think president Trump might've actually uh, tweeted it out in the middle of, uh, of the lockdown. So it was absolutely wild to see that this even happened in America. This was at a time where for me, I was just starting to really be uh, woken up about the craziness happening in our world and to actually see, um, a man being arrested for exercising his freedom of religion was absolutely mind blowing to me. I remember the, the sense of fear that overcame me in that moment. And I'm thankful that all this time later, I have actually, um, swallowed the fear and moved past it and, and tried to get active, which is what most of us should do in this instance. And I mean, major kudos to Gabe for having the fortitude to be able to go through this 
And I think it's really important for us to even talk about this story because, uh, you know, everyone's focusing in on aliens and whether or not they're, uh, they're real, but, uh, it's important for us to celebrate a win because it's very rare, or at least it, it seems very rare that we actually get a win on, uh, on the sort of freedom side of the debate. Um, but Ron, I wanted to turn it over to you to get your initial reaction to this article and Gabe's whole situation. It happened. We got a settlement because it was Idaho. Mm. In New York, New Jersey, California, Oregon, Washington. He would not have gotten a settlement. And in fact, he probably would have been convicted and sentenced. Uh, I argued in front of um, a federal judge trying to get a, um, an injunction, actually on behalf of, of, of a group of, um, of uh, pastors in, in southern New Jersey who challenged the COVID regulations prohibiting worship services for all practical purposes, making them almost impossible. And we came this close to getting the injunction. We got a temporary restraint. We, 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 we did get an order to show cause. And then the judge lost his nerve because he saw that the Supreme Court was not going his direction. That was before the, the change of personnel that took place. Mm -hmm. um, it's astonishing that he got a settlement. It's actually a, not a bad settlement either, $300,000. Um, but it's much more important, obviously, from the from the moral point of view, and you know, location, location, location. He was in Idaho, and the only reason that this happened was that the people in Moscow, in the aptly named Moscow, town of <laughs> Moscow, Idaho, um, thought that they were in the other Moscow, and uh, they forgot that they were in Idaho. I don't know how many more Idaho's are left. States that were once considered to be conservative are turning purple and red, um, going to my earlier point. But it is, it's outrageous. And, it, you know, it, I give him all the credit for doing the right thing uh, and for sticking, sticking, sticking it out. And certainly his lawyers deserve, you know, lawyers, I, I will tell you, I have a client in a famous case who uh, is a very big celebrity. And everyone is, you know, he likes to talk about how he won this case. He didn't win the case. I won the case. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, on, and he's, you know, uh, so the, these guys, you know, they, they should, I'm sure they're not even mentioned in, in, in the article. Uh, these are often thankless, although in this case it probably wasn't thankless because there's a nice settlement there, but it, it's an important it's an it's an important outcome and you know both on the covid point of on the covid piece of it which was nonsense almost immediately it was almost it was obviously nonsense from go and certainly on the first amendment point outrageous and and, and also very distressing how many law enforcement officers went along with this yeah and would go along with it tomorrow again yeah unfortunately i wish that weren't true but Sadly, it was shocking to see the amount of blind compliance from law enforcement officers. Michael, I wanted to turn it over to you to get your initial reaction to Gabe's situation. Well, I think it can be summed up. There's a sentence in the article. It says, Gabriel Wrench was arrested in September 2022 along with two other churchgoers for not wearing masks to an outdoor worship service, which I think summarizes 
the situation and highlights the absurdity of it in its origin. The fact that that took place in the first place is, is horrendous. Um, and he said something, he was quoted in the article, later in the article, Gabe said, yeah, sure, it's it's a small win, but how about all the other people that didn't get a win out of this right. and were otherwise uh, suppressed or, or manipulated by authorities? And more have we seen of that through Canada or other countries, even aside from the United States. We've got an Australian guy in the chat on Rumble who's been discussing some of the issues that he's encountered in Melbourne. But yeah, like you said, it's it's good to get a win, but it's hard even for me to not feel like it's a small band-aid on a large wound. Mm. Yeah. Sarah, what was your initial thought? Uh, well, first of all, I feel like it should set a precedence. I mean, if he if he did he win this uh because he was able to prove that his constitutional rights were violated. Is that essentially uh, how he won? Yeah, yeah. And and different articles covered a little bit more of um, what the actual ruling was, but I believe that was essentially what it boiled down to. Okay, so in my opinion, it should set a precedence. I mean, if, if, if he was able to win based on his constitutional rights being violated, then uh, this should this should be true for everyone that has been arrested or uh, been uh, ar for wearing a mask outside. But can I? I just also want to point something else out. But it was a settlement, Sarah. It was a okay. settlement. Okay. So yeah. That, and one of the reasons that, that that you settle is to avoid a precedent being set. Oh, okay. All right. I see. Um, but can I also just point something else out real quick? Um, Connor, can you bring the article back up really quick? Because I want to point something yeah. out. Can you go to the picture where he's being arrested? Okay. If you look in the background, this this is this is what is blowing my mind. If there was not any other kind of I mean, if this is not a message that says we don't care about the science and we don't care about uh, your actual health, we only care about you doing exactly as we tell you to do. If you look um look at the amount of people out side who are not wearing masks. I, it, it's absolutely unreal to me. And I was looking at some of these other pictures as well, where it showed group photos of some in this article, it showed group photos of multiple people in the, in the worship session, outdoor worship session who are not look at, look there, look at how many people are not wearing masks. Why was he singled out? Well, I do know that Gabe is um, a pastor at, at uh, Christ Church in Moscow, and I think they may have been the ones that initiated it. So I honestly think this is one of the instances of they were trying to bring down um, sort of the, the ringleader in this situation. I could be wrong on that. I'm sure, um, you know, Gabe would be more than willing to correct us on that front yeah. as he's doing kind of a media tour right now with uh, with his settlement and he deserves it. Um, but yeah, I'd love uh, to know because if this was a matter of health, if this was truly a matter of health, then why was he the only one arrested? It's, it's, it, it blows my mind when I saw those. When I saw those well, posts. you can see there was the, the little dots that they had painted, and essentially the city painted the dots so that they can um, do their psalm sing if they were to stay on those dots. And I believe uh, what happened leading up to his arrest is Gabe um, basically said that he's not going to do that, and I think he uh, put his put his 
arm around someone from his church while they were singing. And that's what, uh, that's what led them to uh, take his hymnal from his hands and uh, put him under arrest and take him in. And that's just insane that that even happened in the first place, but you're right. I mean, it's, it's absolutely not consistent, but the reality is it's just a matter of it's, it's just them flexing what they can get away with. You know, that's what it ultimately boils down to. But yeah, I mean, it, it's just wild. I'm I'm ultimately just glad that we saw some justice here because I really think that it's tempting in today's day and age to just take the black pill and uh, uh, pretend that everything is is lost. And the reality is, um, as Ron already pointed out, a lot of these conservative states are not doing a very good job being conservative, um, not being a being very constitutional. Um, but here and there, if we if we uh, stick to our guns we will occasionally see a victory and that's, that's at least some encouragement. Um, I want to jump in the chat. I think we had a couple of, of good chats here. Michael, did we have anything specific on rumble? Um, not that pertains to this immediate context. Okay. Uh, Devin said, Mr. Ron, I took down a plaintiff in a wrongful termination case. He got terminated um, for not responding to a call that Easter Sunday, 2020 service was happening without masks. So he got, he got terminated by the police department because I wait, I took down a plaintiff. I'm a little confused. I took down a plaintiff in a wrong termination case. He got terminated for not responding to a call that Easter Sunday 2020 service was happening without masks. Well, feel free to send us a little more details on that, Devin, because okay, so sure I can understand if, if the if the plaintiff was the one who was the wrong wrongfully terminated, it's just like like Devon is telling me the wrong side won. Oh, uh, okay, uh, okay. I took down. I'm a court reporter. The plaintiff is Poe, the police officer. <laughs> He's Poe. So what do you want? Of course, he doesn't have a job anymore. Uh, <laughs> okay. So she was reporting. Um, the plaintiff is a police officer. Right. Okay. I took down. I thought that Devon was telling me that she was a lawyer. I, I took him down. <laughs> yeah. I took down. She she took it down in court. Uh, yes. Right. In other words, he was he was called to, to some somebody was informing like they do in communist countries on their neighbors, and. Um, <laughs> As all, as children have been taught to do in this country as well now, and certainly COVID was was that experiment, and uh, he was fired, and and someone found out that he hung up. The, I don't know whether it was a dispatcher or as he said it was a police officer. He sat in his car and finished his donut instead of running to arrest a bunch of people for having an Easter Sunday service without masks. And someone complained to the to the sergeant or the PD and. He got fired because the brass in these places tend to be the most spineless. It's the guys on the beat and the ladies on the beat who tend to be, if any, if, if anyone has any druthers about this or any qualms about, about this kind of thing, it, it is usually not the brass. As we see in the Pentagon, uniform services are no different from anywhere else. People who uh, make trouble, people who depart from, uh, you know, group think, don't tend to go very high up in the ranks. But yes, Devon, I, I, I definitely, I, that happened a lot. And look, police 
public employees have very good benefits. They have very good pensions. And it doesn't take much to make it clear to them that if they don't do what they're told, that the deal that they made, which was that, the, that they're going to undertake potentially dangerous, uh, potentially, you know, life, you know, risking their lives on, the, on behalf of the public uh, in, in exchange for, you know, very good benefits and, and uh, you know, whatever else the deal is, that they're putting that at risk if they don't do what they're told. But you know, it's the same thing as we were saying before. You got to make, you got to make your choices. Yeah, absolutely. We'll move on to our next story here, and it's kind of similar vein in terms of abuse of authority, or at least that's what uh, some people are arguing here. This is from the Tennessee Conservative News. Release of Covenant school shooters' writings could take up to three years. And uh, this is actually by Adelia, who's been on the show before. So shout out to you, Adelia. Uh, debate continues over whether the Covenant shooters' writings should be released to the public or not. After three adults and three nine-year-old children were shot and killed in March of this year, according to Metro Nashville Police Chief John Drake, the shooter kept a detailed map, known entry points, drawings of the Covenant school, and journals related to the shooting. It's now been two months since the issue was brought to court, and one lawyer has relayed that the case may not come to a close for another three years. Some of the organizations suing the Metro government for a public records release include the Nashville Police Association and the Tennessee Firearm Association, TFA. According to John Harris, an attorney representing TFA, depending on the path the court cases takes, it could easily be 2026 before it comes to a close. The appeals court does not currently have a headline. A deadline, excuse me. Harris told Fox 17 News that he did not expect the process to take so long. These cases were filed, and we expected that the showcase hearings would have taken place as initially scheduled back in May, said Harris. Here we are almost two months later, and the case is nowhere near resolution. In the initial aftermath of the March 27th shooting, Metro Police cited an open criminal investigation as their reason for not releasing the writings. But Harris does not think this reasoning holds up since the shooter is dead and there is no other person of interest. Harris is one of many who feel that the Metro police should comply with the Tennessee public records act and release the writings to the public. So again, there's more in this article that we can get into bit by bit here, but this is definitely a story that is uh, local to Tennessee, but is incredibly um, national at this point in terms of uh, just the people have been asking over and over again, when is this manifesto coming out? And you can see that it seems they're slow walking it. Um, now, I don't know all the exact reasons. There's a lot of interesting um, points to this story. For example, uh, the ERLC, which is affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention, has seem, seemingly been a, a part of the, uh, the process of trying to keep this information hushed, um, despite most people in the SBC probably being of the mindset that it should be released. Um, so there's a lot of interesting angles here, but I mean... The whole thing is unfortunate. We know that this person was a troubled individual, and we know that this person was one of the first, if not the first, um, known transgender shooter. And it was a biological woman who was on some form of hormones, most likely. We don't know all the uh, results of the autopsy. Um, 
in fact, the article does say at the bottom that they did not actually scan for prescription drugs, which is kind of an interesting choice for the autopsy as far as that is concerned. Um, but either way, I think this case is wild and the people are really wanting to see some transparency about what truly happened that day and what happened leading up to it. But uh, Sarah, I'll turn it over to you for your initial thoughts on just this whole situation and the manifesto potentially taking three years to be released. Yeah. Um, so actually, I have a few things to say about this, actually. Um, when this happened in March, um, emotionally, it really messed me up <laughs> um, mm -hmm. when this happened. And I'm sure it, it messed a lot of people up. But a lot of it had to do with the fact that I did a very extensive investigation on the Uvalde shooter. And with the amount of information that was buried regarding the shooter in Uvalde, it was very similar to this uh, shooting as well. And that is the fact that both of these kids, which the shooters were, were kids, um, were very mentally ill. And that does not uh, match up with their narrative. And so their entire intention is to bury any kind of uh, information that would make these kids look mentally ill, because if they were, then they would be uh, held accountable as to, okay, um, why did they not receive the proper care um, that they needed as they were growing up? And in March, um, and uh, as far as their agenda, as far as what they're trying to push here, I, I actually tweeted something about this in March um, that ended up getting millions of views, and I had no idea that it was going to take off the way it did. Uh, but I brought it up here, um, and I said, uh, when Black people were killed, they flew the BLM flag and they used the blackout profile photos. When Ukrainian people have been killed, they flew the Ukrainian flag. When gay people were killed, they flew the pride flag. But when Christians were killed, they victimized the killer. They justified her actions by making her the seventh victim of her own shooting because of trans oppression and genocide. And that tweet, I think it, it was, it, it had a very far reach. And I think it's because I said the quiet part out loud. Um, there were so many people showing up to protest i'm not even you know school shootings but they're standing there um in uh, in nashville and in tennessee and they're holding up seven fingers and the reason they're holding up seven fingers is because they're saying that the shooter was the seventh victim in any other case has never happened previously in, ever absolutely it's never happened and the left and is quick it, to jump at a school shooting and make sure that they're there in front of the cameras too so yes and so th if that doesn't tell you what the agenda is i don't know what does here we go back to logical thinking anybody who thinks logically can see holy cow this is in our face um with the uvalde shooter um, I, if you want, you can go look for it. I wrote an article about it way before I became a writer with the Publica um, on my Texas Freedom Coalition website. Um, and I wrote about the fact that this child never received the care that he should have received as a, an abused, passed around child who was angry, who um, tortured cats, who tortured kids on the playground. 
um, threw dead cats at people's houses. I mean, the list went on and on and none of this was brought up. And it's the same with this, with this man. That's the, I guarantee that's why that they're not showing the manifesto of the trans shooter. Um, and I myself have actually, uh, as the president of Texas Freedom Coalition, I have written several open records requests to that police department asking, also asking for records of the manifesto. And the response I kept getting was that this is still an open case. Um, and I have a very good friend who is an attorney. Um, and uh, I actually have several good friends who are attorneys, but this one in particular, I was talking to him about the responses that I got, which the receipts I showed on, on my Twitter page. And he said, this is not being followed lawfully because if the, the shooter is dead and there are no other you know, suspects within the case, then the case is legally considered closed. But they are lying and saying that the case is still open, which is why they are not sharing any information whatsoever, because they want everyone to forget about it. That's what they want. Absolutely. And unfortunately, they are using this as a convenient foil to pass some uh, restrictions on Second Amendment here in Tennessee. Um, and unfortunately, there's a lot of sign that uh, Governor Bill Lee, conservative governor, is supposedly meeting uh, and doing some backdoor deals right now. Uh, they are they've called a special section session, excuse me, to occur in August. Um, probably the end of August, and they're expecting that it's only going to be a day or two because um, it sounds like there's a lot of deals being made behind closed doors right now. So if you care about the Second Amendment, you live in Tennessee, um, even if you're outside of Tennessee, I recommend following Tennessee Firearm Association, the TFA that was mentioned in this article. Um, they're actually partnering with uh, John Rich, um, and they're, they're starting a, a campaign called Red Flag Down to stop Governor Bill Lee from passing any form of legislation that would be a red flag law or uh, you know, red flag law called something different, which is a, what they're most likely going to end up doing. Um, because ultimately they're unfortunately they are they are taking taking the reins and they are using this as a great opportunity to pass some uh, law that Tennesseans do not want. Uh, we are not quite a constitutional carry state. Um, some people think we are. Uh, we are. Uh, uh, we are not quite there, but we have made some great gains uh, in two A legislation, and it's crucial that we don't get set back just because a governor who's going to term out, which is why I think he's doing this uh, now, apparently thinks it's a good idea to betray his constituents and potentially pass some legislation that no one in Tennessee wants. So. Um, I definitely recommend looking into that red flag down and Tennessee Firearm Association. And I'm sure uh, John Rich will be posting all about that as well. Um, but Ron, I'll, I'll go ahead and turn it over to you um, to get any of your thoughts on this whole story. I think Sarah has some smart attorney friends. <laughs> they, th this is, there's a tremendous amount of arrogance uh, on, the, on the part of government functionaries who refuse to uh, obey the law, whether it's state or federal public records, um, th they think that they, that we work for them. It is absolutely, you know, without knowing Tennessee law or what, you know, 
is there's no valid legal or public policy reason to not release this information. We see this happen also in Uvalde. We also see that this happened with the MGM uh, shooting in Las, in Las Vegas. There's, there's stonewalling works. When you're the government, stonewalling works, especially because there's so little incentive not to stonewall. Uh, no one's really ever accountable for wrongfully withholding information. Look at the FBI does routinely withholding information. The worst thing that can happen to a government official who is found to have wrongfully withheld information that the public is entitled to know is that he or she will have to let that information be known. A year, two years, three years, how many hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of legal fees later. Uh, if, if, and if there's a penalty, it'll be paid by the taxpayers. It won't be paid by, uh, by, the, by the people uh, who are being protected and it won't be paid by the people who are protecting them. So this, this is a, a major policy problem. And um, you know, in general, we have, an, we have a problem with accountability in public life and government is too big. And it's, as you pointed out, it doesn't do what it constituents want it to do. It does what it wants to do because it knows better. Yeah, unfortunately. Michael, what was your take? Oh, what what Sarah and Ron have said is I think apt. It's <laughs> there's not much left to be said really, but it, it is preposterous to think that the three year mark is what they're projecting for the release of this information. And what Ron just said is that our the taxpayer dollars will provide the avenue for them to to make that or postpone, I should say, that release. It's disturbing. It's disgusting. It's frustrating. Can I also just say one more thing? Yeah. Um, it's also interesting that they're not releasing uh, the results as far as prescription drugs. Right. Uh, because, you know, as, as you said, they, they didn't find any anything else, but they're not releasing the information on prescription drugs. This was a trans, uh, a young trans person who was more than likely on cross-sex hormones um, or puberty blockers. And though uh, one of them is, uh, one of the puberty blockers is Lupron. Mm -hmm. And these drugs have very severe side effects. And if they were to release the information on exactly what drugs this young person was taking, um, that would also give a lot of ammo uh, as far as those of us who are against the uh, the gender ideology, the transitioning of teenagers and young kids, um, it would give us a lot of ammo. And so it's it's funny how they're picking and choosing what they want released and what they don't want released uh, because they know that um, it, it would be dangerous for them. Yeah, and well, keep in mind the uh, they need to protect the transgender ideology. They also need to protect the pharmacology companies that are yes. benefiting off of yep. this ideology it's yep. a it's a multifaceted protection that is protecting evil that is in the midst of our country yeah and keep in mind that currently tennessee is trying very very hard to uh pass some legislation that would prevent a lot of these uh trans 
transitional surgeries, as well as the um, gender affirming care that is taking place in in Tennessee at large. And, uh, you know, they've been tied up in the courts with a lot of this legislation. Um, I don't know where it stands as of right now because it's been back and forth. Um, but I believe that, uh, um, you know, we're making some serious headway with um, people like Matt Walsh has done a good job of bringing the national attention to it, but there's a lot of great individuals um, like Tennessee Conservative News and Tennessee Stands, Gary Humble, a lot of great individuals who have been um, on the front lines and the grassroots level really pushing to get some serious change happening in terms of what the actual uh, legislation looks like preventing uh, these surgeries from occurring in the first place. And ultimately, I think that if this uh, if this manifesto was released, um, obviously there's national implications. There are so many people that kind of want to say, aha, we knew it. You know, if this if this manifesto says, you know, I'm going to kill off these bigoted Christians, you know, to something to that degree, obviously that's going to make so many people in um, in just the, the apolitical sphere wake up to sort of the dangers of this um of this movement. But then beyond that, if, if they get a, a proper autopsy, you know, that's going to just give so much ammunition for um, these legislators that are already being hammered by their constituents. Hey, pass this, pass this bill, pass this bill, pass this bill. Um, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just going to make the, uh, the success of legislation in Tennessee to ban this stuff. And of course it'll spread from Tennessee. Uh, the, the success rate is just going to go up dramatically if this autopsy can give any form of of uh, legitimacy to why gender affirming care, as they call it, should be allowed to even be um, accessible to minors, let alone, um, you know, people who are above the age of consent. And so ultimately, I think that's really what they're doing. Um, share a Joel in the chat said similar to michael that's because they must protect big pharma at all costs the reality is these transgender individuals are going to be permanent big pharma customers um you know with the side effects that occur after after these procedures take place and um like you mentioned already sarah you know the, a lot of these drugs they really do alter uh, an individual's levels of aggression and this was a, a biological woman that did this shooting. And that's incredibly rare to see a woman be a mass shooter. Um, but that's because this woman was potentially on a cocktail of drugs that who knows all the effects that it can have on a person's, uh, person's brain, a person's mental capacity. And Sarah, you would know a lot more than we would about, uh, what all goes into that. But obviously it's, 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 scientific malpractice to pretend that you can take all these drugs and nothing's going to happen. I think that's just completely unwise. And anyone trying to sell you that is, is just a snake oil salesman at this point. Right. And they, and they've already proven a, a lot of the uh, immediate effects um, from these drugs and the short, the short-term effects, let alone the fact that there, there are no long-term studies on um, a lot of these drugs um, but also, I mean, you said something very significant earlier. You said that, you know, that they're going to be a patient for life. And that is true. Um, whether they decide to stay um, on these drugs or they decide to detransition, they are still a patient for life. And it's yep. very heartbreaking when we were at the state capitol and we heard so many detransitioners testifying um, about what had been what had happened to their body um, permanently uh, mutilated. Um, because of doctors that, and parents as well, who had, 
um, went along with the doctors on transitioning these kids uh, before they were even at the age of 18. Um, and it was very heartbreaking to listen to them, but now some of them are so incredibly mentally and physically destroyed, um, will never look the same again. Um, it, it was so heartbreaking to hear the things they were saying because sometimes they said that they were going to doctors and the doctors, some of them were actually turning them away because they didn't know what to do for them. They, they're like, we don't, we've never dealt with this before and we don't know what to do with them. But these, these forever patients are going to be forever going to the doctor and saying, please help me, please fix this. Um, or at least make me feel comfortable again. Uh, because they, you know, infections are rampant and, um, you know, continuous infections and, um, uh, osteoporosis is another is another uh, hor horrible side effect of some of these drugs and bone problems and you know how they are even able to carry themselves. Um, it's very sad. So they are forever a patient, whether they decide to stay that way or detransition. Um, they can never go back. Yeah. And a child, a child does not understand permanency. So a That's child right. doesn't understand the effect of making a decision like this and not being able to go back. Yeah. The benefit to big pharma is far beyond the synthetic hormones that they're promoting. It goes, like you said, into the physical care that is required for the injuries that are sustained through the gender affirming care, mm -hmm. as well as things like antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, and the slew of drugs that are required to handle the side effects of those as well. Right. So for, just throwing this out there, um, we will never, we, we will probably never know what prescription drugs this person was on. Um, and as someone who has a degree in psychology, I, lear I learned a lot about uh, anti, you know, anti-anxiety medicines and whatnot. And one of the, one of the things we learned was that if you were to switch your drugs, one anti-anxiety med to another, too quickly or, you know, come off of one too quickly. Um, you can, uh, it, it changes your entire thought process. It can mm -hmm. cause you to be suicidal and make decisions you would not otherwise make. And we will never know if that was the case with this, uh, with this shooter because they won't release that information, but that is definitely a, a huge, uh, possibility. Yeah. Share Joel in the, in the chat said when the columbine shooting happened here in colorado that they took down the two extra crosses that were put up for the shooters rightfully wow. so i just thought we should go back to that because that's uh that's powerful especially because columbine was debatably the the thing that sort of set off the trend of school shootings here in america but wow that's crazy well be praying for the families involved in the covenant shooting as well as the family of the of the shooter because obviously we don't fault the parents um we have no idea what their involvement level was we'll probably never fully know that story either way pray for them and and uh the hurt that i have no i i have no doubt all of these individuals involved are are going through and make sure to get involved with uh tennessee firearms association if you want to help uh, put a stop to potential red flag laws coming to Tennessee by your conservative governor. So um, don't let them do it. Don't let them seize this as an excuse and politicize this. Um, keep our, keep our rights protected. But uh, 
that's pretty much all the time that we had for tonight. So uh, we'll go ahead and go around the horn and uh, and uh, I'll let you guys shout out your various projects. So Sarah, where can people uh, find you to keep up with everything that you're doing? Uh, yeah, so we're going to continue with the Dirty 30 campaign. And um, I have a few other stories I'm working on. You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah is censored or Instagram. Sarah is is censored or uh, Facebook at Sarah J. Fields. Excellent. And Ron, where can people find you? At Ron Coleman on Twitter. Everything else I'm doing, I talk about on Twitter incessantly. So that's really enough. Yeah. And check out the Coleman Nation. It's a great podcast. Thank I really you. enjoy it. So. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Absolutely. That. Michael, where can people find you? You'll find me sitting at the student center here at the school studying <laughs> eschatology. Excellent. Well, thank you everyone for listening, watching, wherever you consume our media. We really appreciate it. And we'll see you next time.